I'm, I'm just flummoxed that they're that bad. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-973-7425. Y'all, I, I, I am, I'm just, I can't believe that. We're, we're where we are. Did they not learn anything from last year? Uh, I hope you had a great weekend. We got to dive right in because this is just uh, crazy. I guess this is the best they can do. This is from the Politico. It, it has just hit the wires. President Biden and fellow Democrats have struggled to overcome historic headwinds and worrisome economic trends in the lead up to the midterm. So aides are scheming up something else, turning the campaign into a contrast With Donald Trump and the Republicans, President Biden and his team are hoping to spend the spring and summer months drawing sharp distinctions with Republicans, one in particular. They still plan to push forward revived pieces of stalled agenda, but they're also eagerly awaiting potentially explosive findings from the January 6th Select Committee and hope those discoveries can inflame a battle brewing within the GOP. Biden who has tried to pivot back toward domestic matters while also tending to the war in Ukraine, gave a hint of the upcoming strategy on his recent West Coast string in which he blasted the GOP for falling under control of right-wing extremists. That's it. That's what they've got. We're going to do an entire midterm campaign on you think it's bad now. Wait till the Republicans are in charge. They've given up. This is a sign they've given up. They they can't fix inflation. It's no longer transitory. They're not going to fix the immigration problem. They're not going to fix any of the problems any of the people care about that they need to care about, the result of which is a Democratic Party that is going to run against Donald Trump. Now, we've seen this before. And this is the major thing you got to remember is Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe decided to run against Donald Trump. Now, to be fair, and we often on our side downplay this, but to be fair, Terry McAuliffe was able to increase Democratic turnout from what it otherwise would have been by making it about Donald Trump, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. This is just genuinely, to me, uh, ridiculous that they're out of it. Now, uh, it goes beyond that, though, because there's a big story in the New York Times today. As an aside, there are lots of stories coming out about a new book. Uh, Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, both of the New York Times, are writing this. Now, keep in mind, Jonathan Martin came out of National Review, was in conservative circles, made it to the mainstream media, worked for Politico for a while, is at the New York Times. He's got this book uh, with Alexander Burns chronicling the uh, early days of the Biden administration, the end of the Trump administration. They clearly held a bunch of scoops for this book. The, I can't remember the last time a book like this got as much buzz. Every media outlet is talking about it and just there's a ethical issue I think that has to be explored at some point on reporters saving their best scoops for their books that benefit them not their news outlets but beyond that though this we got to listen to this President Biden enjoyed high approval among Americans in the early months of his presidency millions of vaccines were distributed throughout the United States the White House, trumpeted high job growth 
as proof of a rebounding economy. But privately, Mr. Biden's lead pollster was already sounding the alarm that even with the early successes, certain gathering threats could sink support for the president and his party. Immigration is a growing vulnerability for the president. John Anzalone and his team warned in a package of confidential polling, voter surveys, and recommendations compiled for the White House. Voters do not feel he has a plan to address the situation on the border, and it's starting to take a toll. Within a month, there was another stark warning. Nearly 9 in 10 registered voters are also concerned about increasing inflation, said another memo obtained by the New York Times. The series of confidential polling data and weekly memos presented to Mr. Biden's inner circle from April of 2021 to January of this year provides a roadmap of the declining support of a president whose initial legislative proposal spurred comparisons to the Great Deal or the new or the, the I'm sorry the New Deal or the Great Society. Despite the early warnings from his pollster, Mr. Biden and his top advisors have struggled to prevent either issue from becoming a major political liability. His economic team said inflation was temporary. Turmoil among his immigration aides delayed any serious action to address the border. They've known. This whole time, they have known. This whole time... They have had time to prepare, and they've done nothing. They knew Title 42 was going to go away. And this this is probably the most damning part of all of this. The Biden administration knew Title 42 had to expire when the pandemic went away. It had to expire when the pandemic went away. They knew, going back to April of last year, that immigration was a problem for them, particularly with the Hispanic voters. And they've done nothing. This entire time, they've done nothing. This entire time, they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And they did nothing. This, this, this is political malpractice. So this is why, by the way, this is why there's a pivot. Because they've given up. They've given up. Oh, but it gets better than that because Axios has a story. The Democrats have decided they're going to fight the GOP on the culture war. They're fighting back against the bludgeoning. This is Axios. They've taken since the Republicans seized on socially charged issues. Recent research has shown the barrage of culture war messaging on everything from critical race theory to bashing LGBTQ communities is working. And Democrats now realize they can't ignore it any longer. They want to make 2022 a referendum on MAGA nation and its agenda. Wait a second. Who are they going to have do this? The American Federation of Teachers. I'm not kidding, y'all. I'm not kidding. They're going to have the squad and the teachers unions fight back. Um, there's a story 
in the New York Times today. Or maybe it was over the weekend. Let me let me find this. I saw people talking about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. How a debut graphic memoir became the most banned book in the country. Maya Kobabi's book, Gender Queer, about coming out as non-binary, landed the author at the center of a battle over which books belong in schools and who gets to make the decision. Coming out as bisexual in high school had been relatively easy. Maya Kobabi lived in the liberal San Francisco Bay Area and had supportive classmates and parents. But coming out as non-binary years later in 2016 was far more complicated. The words available failed to describe the experience. There wasn't this language for it, said Kobabi, 33, who now uses gender-neutral pronouns and doesn't identify as male or female. Yeah. I just thought I am wanting to come out as non-binary and I'm struggling with how to bring this up in conversation with people. And even when I am able to start a conversation about it, I feel like I can never fully get my point across. So Kababi, an illustrator who lives in the Bay Area, started drawing black and white comics about wrestling with gender identity and posting them on Instagram. People started responding things like, I had no idea anyone felt this way. I didn't even know there were words for this, Kababi said. Kababi expanded the material into a graphic memoir, Gender Queer, which was released in 2019 by a comic book and graphic novel publisher. The print run was small, 5,000 copies, and Kababi worried the book wouldn't fill up readership, find readership. Then last year, the book's frank grappling with gender identity and sexuality began generating headlines around the country. Schools started pulling it from its library shelves. If you read the entire story here, you won't see the real reason the book was pulled. Because Kababi, in her drawings, draws sexually explicit material, including a graphic depiction of teenagers having oral sex. That is why the book was pulled. I, yet again, a media outlet is complaining and won't show you the pictures. It's like the Washington Post doing the attack on libs of TikTok and won't actually show you the videos. They just describe generally the videos that libs of TikTok highlights. It doesn't actually show you the explicit nature of the videos. And the Democrats think they've got to fight back because they're on defense and they need to go on. You can't go on offense with that against parents. Remember the NPR poll that came out Friday? 60% of people who have children 18 and under are voting Republican. Rachel Levine the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human uh, Health and Human Services says pediatricians all agree on the importance of gender-affirming care for children. Levine is the highest-ranking transgender person in the government and said there is no argument about gender-affirming care among pediatricians and doctors who specialize in adolescence. Except that's not true at all. It's not true at all. In fact, it's completely unsettled still. 
progressive activists have no disagreement, but a lot of people, I'm personally rapidly coming to the conclusion that gender-affirming surgery is just the environmentalists engaged in population control with a bunch of gullible people, particularly the parents of kids. You got a confluence of events here, and the Democrats are so so so. Mark Andreessen, he's a venture capitalist. He said he's for the first time in a long time feeling a vibe shift. Yeah, I'm feeling it too. You know what this reminds me of? Back in 2005, George Bush becomes the first Republican in a while to get over 50% of the vote. He's the first president to have lost the Electoral College in his first election and then won it, or, or yeah, lost the popular vote and then won it the second time. He won the popular vote. And about a year later, into his second administration, you get immigration reform, Harriet Myers, Social Security privatization, and his own base revolts against him. I remember having a conversation with Rush Limbaugh. Did a podcast with him. I'm trying to find it, and it may be gone now. But I did a podcast with Rush Limbaugh, and he said, George W. Bush is a good man, but he's not a conservative. He says he's a big government conservative, but you can't be a conservative and be for big government. He's not a conservative. And it was the first time, made a lot of news back in the day, Rush Limbaugh was saying, George Bush, good man, not a conservative. There was a palpable shift in the country's mood when Bush tried to do all these things. And here's the thing. The party base went in one direction that ultimately led to Donald Trump. The American public went in a completely different direction that ultimately led to Barack Obama. There was a real shift. And within two years, the Republicans were wiped out. Nancy Pelosi was speaker and along came Barack Obama. This feels like that moment in time. Except now what's happening is the pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction, and the Democratic Party base is going in a different direction from Joe Biden. They're going further left, and the American public is going to the right. You can almost feel it. And so you have the Democrats coming out, Rachel Levine saying it's beyond dispute, gender-affirming surgery for for preteens. The American Federation of Teachers coming out, denouncing Republican culture war attacks. You know, people forget a majority of Democratic voters in Florida were happy with the parental rights and education bill, the thing the left kept saying, don't say gay. The public, Democratic voters were happy with it. This all comes back to Biden. He doesn't have anything to run on now. They had a year to fix inflation. They had a year to deal with immigration. They failed on all counts. And so now we're forced to do a contrast and say, you think it's bad now, what if the Republicans were in charge? Well, given the way Americans view Democrats in charge right now, it may be they may be selling the GOP in a way the Democrats don't realize. This hour of the program brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. Wherever you are nationwide, you want to grow your business, First Liberty can help you. We're talking big deals. If you want to be a big deal, $750,000 or more, but they can help. Reach out. Tell them I sent you. Go to firstlibertyga.com, firstlibertyga.com. Well, yeah, okay. So I I mentioned that um, in the Democratic pushback towards the right, they're going to get teachers' unions, progressive activists to go out and take out the right. Uh, They've got now Cynthia miller Idris, uh, an MSNBC opinion columnist. Here's the headline. 
how right-wing extremists weaponize the idea of motherhood. Now, you can tell with a title like that that this is a feminist, so we must, in, in the interest of being fair, review this piece in the official Eric Erickson Show feminist voice. <clears throat> I can do this. Trust me. I know what feminists sound like, and I can deliver to you an honest, authentic, candid feminist voice. <clears throat> A new report on the January 6th U.S. Capitol attack published this month by researchers at George Washington University detailed the role that women have played in American far-right extremism over the past century, including how many are leaning heavily into their identities as mothers to justify their engagement and to recruit and mobilize others. Stop laughing. That's not funny. That's what every feminist sounds like. The 102 women who have been arrested in connection with the attack as of mid-March represent 13% of January 6th federal cases. Republicans have weaponized mothers. Can't see the screen now. There's too much spittle. (laughs) I mean, this is is at MSNBC that, that women, moms are the new extremists. Mothers, your mo- yes, your mama is an extremist when you leave your dirty clothes inside out and she's got to do the laundry. Your mother becomes an extremist. I know. I'm scared of my wife when my kids leave their socks inside out and she's got to do the laundry. It is I need a bunker in the house. But, I mean, this is, this is where we are. You got Mother's Day coming up next week. By the way, by the way. There's also a proposal out there from the left to get rid of Mother's Day. Now, I, I got a friend of mine who's a preacher who tells me that he could skip Easter Sunday. He could ignore Easter Sunday and not get as much hate as if he failed to do a special sermon for Mother's Day. And here comes the left telling us we got to get rid of Mother's Day and change it to Loving Parent Day to be gender inclusive. I'm not making that up. This is the world we are living in. The feminists are out to get us. They're angry. Don't you laugh at that. It's just, it's it's remarkable. Here we are. All right, we, we got to move on. We've got so much stuff. And by the way, at the third hour of the show today, Kelvin King is going to spend the whole hour with me. He's one of the candidates for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. The Senate conversations begin today with Kelvin King, every Senate candidate in Georgia. I've invited him for a full hour starting today at 2 p.m. Eastern. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation from Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Just again, a small programming note. Tell your friends, tell your family. Uh, If you're listening live on um, Monday, May 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern, that's the third hour of this program, Gelvin King is going to join me the entire hour. Uh, Kelvin King is running for the U.S. Senate. He was the founder of Black Voters for Trump. He's now running for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. Um, He's got an incredible story. I have invited every single one of these candidates to sit down with me. Uh, Herschel Walker, I think, um, 
we hadn't heard back from him. I'm hoping he will get scheduled. All the others have scheduled so far. So we've got Kelvin Keene. We've got Josh Clark. We've got uh, Gary Black. We've got Latham Sadler. Uh, hopefully we'll get Herschel Walker as well. And it really, the hour is there. I'll guide him in the conversation. But it's it's not going to be combative. Well, you said on January 5th that blah, 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 blah. No, it's, it's who are you? What's your story? Why are you running? What is the issue you care most about for Georgia? What is the issue you care about for the nation? And what sets you apart from everyone else? Uh, the probative question so you can get a sense of who they are, what they stand for. Uh, and we will begin today with Kelvin King. Each of them gets a 2 p.m. hour of the program. Uh, and uh, we will run through those questions in that conversation for that hour. So Kelvin King today, uh, be with me, tell your friends, tell your family, tune in wherever you can. You can always text the word show to 33777 and you can get the podcast. You can get the live stream of the show as well. So if you're not near a radio station that I'm on, you can still listen if you want to listen live to the podcast. And also subscribe to the daily show notes because every single day, all the show prep that I use for this show appears in an email right about the time the show starts along with a link to the live stream so that you can have all the stuff that I am reading uh, and see where I'm getting all my show prep from. It's a great way for you because, my gosh, I get all the time now. Where do you get your stuff? How, how do I do How do I do what you do? Where do you read? all that? I, I get it, and I share it with you so you can make up your own mind. Now, I must get to a couple of bits of audio here, and I must start with this. Uh, David, uh, I, I got to – what is his actual title? David Zerwake. Uh, there he is, David Zerwink. He is a media critic. He is um, uh, the Baltimore Suns media critic. He's an associate professor of communication at Goucher College. He is also a CNN contributor. He was on with uh, Brian Stelter on CNN yesterday. This is about a minute, 30 seconds, but you got to listen to the whole thing in proper context before we dive in. No, I think there's a bigger problem that when we focus on the personalities of people like Elon Musk and people say, oh, I think Elon's thinking this or that. There's a bigger problem here about how we are going to control the channels of communication in mm -hmm. this country. In 1927, we had the Radio Act. 1934, the Communications Act. Congress stepped in. We made rules. FCC wasn't great, but it's still regulating the broadcast industry. You right. can't use vulgar language. You can't do all these things with speech. We gave over our uh, what amounts to our airwaves or our Internet waves to Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And we are in so much trouble. Because those guys believe in making money. We've already seen that with the 2016 election mm. in Zuckerberg when he was taking rubles for ads from Russia and say, oh, I think it's crazy to think they had any influence on this election. Mm. Musk is the same. Musk doesn't want it. Oh, you know, he's upset with the SEC, tried to call. How dare they question him? You know what I'm saying? This is dangerous. We can't think anymore in this country. We don't have people. <laughs> no, I'm serious. We don't have people in Congress who can make regulations that can make it work. I think we can look to the Western countries in Europe for how they are trying to limit it. But you need, you need controls on this. You need regulation. You cannot let these guys control discourse in this country or we are headed to hell. We are there. Trump opened the gates of hell and now they're chasing us down. Wait, we got to get it. Okay. This is a media critic. 
Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Notice he's not critical of the Washington Post with a progressive editorial board. Steve Jobs' widow owns the Atlantic, Lauren Jobs. He's not criticizing her. He's criticizing Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, two of the less-than-progressive billionaires out there. Zuckerberg is more, certainly left socially, but more libertarian. Musk sounds to be as well. They are not ardently... um, Progressive. I know conservatives don't trust Zuckerberg or or even Elon Musk, but they're not the uh, hardcore progressives of the left. The left doesn't like them either. The left doesn't trust them. And this guy thinks we're headed to the road to hell if we allow them to control outlets where other people get together and share information. Now, let's start at the bottom here. Where does the content come from for Facebook and Twitter? Where does it come from? You. You and me. If if you choose not to be on Facebook or Twitter, and most Americans, by the way, are not on Twitter, they don't get the content. So it's not them, it's us. This guy wants to make them the bad guy, but really he doesn't like you. He doesn't like you being able to express yourself. Now, he's fine with himself because he thinks he's an upstanding guy, but he doesn't trust you. This gets to the larger issue here of what's going on in the country right now. Members of the media do not trust you. They're more sympathetic to you if you are a progressive because you think the right way you think correct thoughts but if you're a if you're a conservative no 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 you you're you're bad you can't be trusted that's what's going on here they don't like that uh, you might have a platform to share your views that they don't like twitter is announcing this is before musk takes over that twitter is announcing that they will not allow the purchase of advertising by anyone who is skeptical of climate change i i got to tell you guys funny story my kid tells me his science teacher told him that uh global warming is a myth brought to you by the same people who think boys can become girls. <laughs> that's, that's what the teacher said. <laughs> like, ah, uh, yes, our kids are in a good place. Um, You know, I, I think the world's warming. I actually think the world is warming. And I think it's mostly a natural phenomenon. I, I think we play a role. I think there's too much data to suggest otherwise, but uh, I think it is a lot of it is natural. Some of it is us. There are too many of us to not play a role in a, in a symbiotic ecosystem, but also it's a phenomenon that we can deal with. We don't need to give up Western civilization. We don't need to give up Western civilization. I mean, there, there were points in history where it's hotter than it is now. There are points in history where it's colder than it is now. And they keep changing their language. And you know, in the 1970s, they thought it was going to be global cooling. I think that uh, it is up for debate. Also, 
Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, now says essentially that no one, no one disagrees with the statement that uh, gender-affirming treatment is good for prepubescent teens. Puberty blockers are fine. Uh, that's actually not true. There's actually a, a large amount of disagreement, including from a lot of pediatricians and psychiatrists. But uh, he says no one disagrees. It's only a matter of time before Twitter refuses to take advertising from anyone who disagrees with that statement. You can see where this is headed. It's all about censorship. It's all about control. The very people in the media who are upset that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg might control Twitter or Facebook are the very people who believe Donald Trump's an authoritarian and the only way to stop him is for themselves to be authoritarian. They don't like the competition is really what it is. They don't like it. And along the way, they all sorts to reveal themselves. You know, that's one of the most amazing things here now is, is when people in the Democratic Party get comfortable on TV with their friends on TV and like they start saying things that maybe they shouldn't say. They're revealing things. Samantha Power, for example. Samantha Power was a national security advisor to Barack Obama. She's back in the Biden White House. Listen to this statement about the food insecurity issue. A buddy of mine, Justin, if you're listening, you got to listen to this. This is this is amazing. I know I've got a buddy of mine. He's concerned about potential food shortages given what's happening in the world today. Listen to the Samantha Powers. You'll probably be more concerned. Fertilizer shortages are real now because Russia is a big exporter of fertilizer. And even though fertilizer is not sanctioned, uh, less fertilizer is coming. Coming out of Russia. As a result, we're working with countries to think about natural solutions like manure and compost. And this may hasten transitions that would have been in the interest of farmers to make eventually anyway. So never let a crisis go to waste, but we really do need this financial support uh, from the Congress to be able to meet emergency food needs so we don't see the cascading uh, deadly effects of Russia's war extend into Africa and beyond. Never let a crisis go to waste. Farmers need to transition away from fertilizer anyway. You know, in, in Sri Lanka, there's a major food crisis. Do you know why? They decided to go organic in their farming and their crop yields are down. Listen, I'm actually a big advocate of organic farming. I've got a small gardener I had until the rabbits and deer and squirrel got in and then we didn't have enough bullets to shoot them all. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm a big fan of organic gardening. I, I am. Prince Charles, big advocate of organic gardening. But when you're trying to feed the world, fertilizer is a good thing. When you're trying to feed the world, fertilizer boosts crop yields. Pesticides keep the, the bugs down, low cost, less, less work. It's good in Sri Lanka. They're going to starve because they decided to shift to organic farming in a lot of the country. It's been a disaster for them. And here comes Samantha Power saying, never let a crisis go to waste. We need to go back to organic farming. You know, um, crop yields went up and it was because of fertilizer. Charlie's pointing out organic organic farming at scale doesn't work. Small farms work. Uh, Big industrial farms needed for the world, it doesn't work well. And she's saying it does. By the way, ha, you didn't get this one, Charlie. Notice what she says about manure. They need more manure and compost. Where are you going to get the manure from when you ban the cattle because the cattle release methane that are bad for global warming and the climate change zealots believe that we need to end the production of beef? 
you're not going to have enough cattle manure out there or pig manure because they want in the pigs too for the same reason. So how exactly are you going to be able to use the manure and the compost? You don't want them to use the fertilizer. You're getting rid of the cows and the pigs. You're making us all eat bugs. Are you going to use people poop? Uh, that's not going to go very far. I'm starting to gag just thinking about that one. It's not going to. It's not going to work for you. Uh, it, you know what we're seeing in real time here? We're we're seeing a mythology become a religion, and they're trying to sort out the inconsistencies in their orthodoxy. Christianity over two thousand years has a very consistent orthodoxy. Environmentalism does not. And that's what we're seeing here. And we're seeing it in real time. And, and, and their solution is to shut up everybody else, censor everyone else, complain that Elon Musk and, and Mark Zuckerberg control the Internet. And, and, and how dare they? These people are really trying to take advantage of the crises of the world to fundamentally disrupt the world. And the problem they have is the people have caught on and the people are mad and they're going to vote Republican in November as a result of it. Speaking of all that farming and manure and stuff, you know, if you've got those stinky odors in your house, the Eden Pure Thunderstorm is a way to get rid of them. It eliminates odors. It doesn't mask them. It eliminates them. Wipes them out. Also gets rid of the mildew, the mold, the bacteria, the pollen, and the air. You can do it all by going to EdenPureDeals.com and get three of them for less than $200. You're saving $200. You get free shipping. What happens if you go to EdenPureDeals.com, you'll see a discount code box on the front page. You put ERIC3, E-R-I-C-K-3, and presto, it takes you through to the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. You see you get three of them for less than $200 at checkout. If it hadn't carried the discount over, you'll see a discount box. You can put in Eric 3 there as well, and you will save $200. Get all three of them for less than $200, and you get free shipping, EdenPureDeals.com. Well, you know, I told you I wasn't really big on Disney getting rid of the Reedy Creek situation or getting rid of Reedy Creek the way they were doing it because it did sound like spiking the football, and I know voters don't like it. When you spike the football and it could build to a backlash. But I said at the same time, if it worked as deterrence, it will be worth it. And it looks like it has worked as deterrence. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has the story. Disney's clash with Florida has CEOs on alert. In private meetings and coaching sessions over the past weeks, top business leaders have been asking a version of the same question. How do we avoid becoming the next Walt Disney Company? The fallout from the recent political spat between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has alarmed leaders across the corporate sphere, according to executives and their advisors, and heightened the challenges for chief executive officers navigating charged topics. At many companies, vocal employees have in recent years pushed bosses to take public stands on social and political issues. Florida's pushback against Disney has raised the stakes. The number one concern CEOs have is, when should I speak out on public issues, said Bill George, former chairman and CEO of Medtronic, PLC, and now a senior fellow at Harvard Business School. As one CEO said to me, I want to speak out on social issues, but I don't want to get involved in politics, which I said under my breath, that's not possible. Some executives might be relieved. The old idea that CEOs should focus on shareholder returns and stay out of politics lingers in some corporate suites, even in a politicized age of 
public social media discussions and more activist workforces. Certainly the consequences of weighing in appear to be changing. Lawmakers for years have expressed displeasure when companies take public stands on issues such as voting access through critical tweets, public remarks, and in some cases calls for public boycotts. Disney's experience shows a willingness to go further, corporate advisors say, by challenging arrangements that have helped a company to operate. Good. So the deterrence has worked. So the deterrence has worked. So more of this, please. You know, a few years ago, Delta, uh, when they yanked uh, benefits for NRA members flying the NRA discount because the gun lobby pressured them, uh, Georgia revoked Delta's, uh, what was it, their, their, or added taxes to fuel, put back a fuel tax that Delta was exempt from. The governor of Georgia at the time, Nathan Deal, then um, restored it, which was unfortunate. But um, Disney and its fight over Reedy Creek shows that uh, you can now start engaging. And Republicans, you need to remember this in your state legislatures, wherever you're listening to me right now. If you're willing to fight back with corporations and hit them in the pocketbook for their willingness to get involved in politics and social issues for the left, uh, it's having an effect now. What Florida has done to Disney is good for the nation. By the way, it's good for the companies, too, because a lot of CEOs don't want to. Some of the younger ones do, but most CEOs, they really don't want to get involved and they feel pressure by their employees. And now they can legitimately say, nope, can't do it. It's going to cost us business. It's bad for shareholders if we do this. And they'll be right. Taking a stand sometimes is foolish. Good for the Republicans for taking a stand against these companies. When we come back, we got to move on to other things, including the obsession with Donald Trump ongoing in the press. 